Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 22 of Cardboard Time. This is Arwen, and I am running solo again for this one. This is actually going to be a little bit of a different episode. It's going to be the Button Shy Solo Spectacular. I will have a guest for the next episode, which I will talk about towards the end of the episode. But yeah, looking forward to diving in. Today's beer of the day is the Utica Club. It is from West End Brewing Company out of Utica, New York. And I actually used to work in a co-op assignment about 10 miles away from there. So it was interesting to have this one again. I went home to go visit my parents in Buffalo the past weekend. And I got to see a great friend of mine who I hadn't seen in quite some time, uh, who offered a Utica club up. And it was pretty much exactly what I expected, uh, about a two and a half out of five. It, it was okay at best. It was moderately drinkable, but it was it was fine. I mean, it, it wasn't anything uh, spectacular. It was pretty standard. Aside from the beer, uh, Utica Club was also the genesis of the mascots Schultz and Dooley, uh, who were two talking beer steins. And a fun fact is that a pair of them can actually fetch over $1,200 in today's secondary market. So just in case you didn't know. Well, if you've been around our social media, you will see that there is a brand new logo for Cardboard Time, and I'm certainly in love with it. I'm very excited about it. I hope that you all love it as well. It is the brainchild of Erica at Brazen Babes Design. She is responsible for it. So if you have any need of branding, definitely make sure to go check out her site. She is fantastic. She is an awesome person to deal with. So with that, I am currently facing out the old logo and transitioning the new logo in and going to be making some merchandise. Some of it is actually on the way as we speak. We're going to be starting with badge ribbons and buttons to be handed out at Dragon Con and Origins this year, as well as sending them in some giveaways. But we'll see from there. Any suggestions that you might have, you know exactly where to send them. If you don't, listen to the end of the episode and you'll find out. Speaking of Dragon Con, it is fast approaching and I'm trying to figure out exactly what to bring with me for games. I have so many many that I want to replay as well as some that I really want to get to the table and review. Still trying to figure that out. If you're going to be there though, please don't be afraid to get a hold of me. I would absolutely love to play a game or two while I'm down there with some listeners. And speaking of giveaways, due to the new logo hitting 300 followers on Instagram and the big pending 2,000 download mark, we're going to be doing a new giveaway. AEG has been nice enough to provide a copy of War Chest to give away, which is probably my favorite two-player abstract game out there. Wonderful quality an amazing gameplay, uh, very strategic. Details will be up on Instagram, but there will be a keyword as well for you to use at the end of the podcast to give you an extra chance at winning. So make sure that you stay tuned. And as we always do, it is now time to check the Shelf of Shame. The Shelf of Shame is now sitting at 160. That is minus one from last episode. Three new additions, Kabuto Sumo, Ten and Whirling Witchcraft all came in from Kickstarters. And I did get a chance to play all three, so 
that was really cool, as well as a game that was on my shelf of shame called Last Call. And I believe next week we will be talking about Whirling Witchcraft and Last Call. Uh, Kabuto Sumo is pretty interesting. It's kind of like Coindozer if it were a board game. You're trying to basically push your opponent off of a 3D platform by using these circular disks. Unique, interesting mechanic, and normally I'm not one for dexterity games, but I really, really enjoyed this one. And it's worth checking out. If you're interested in dexterity games or you're looking for one that's maybe a little bit different, doesn't involve flicking, it's more strategic with pushing, one to check out. I would highly recommend taking a look at Kabuto Sumo. That's about it for The Shelf of Shame. Next week, I do believe, again, we will be talking about Whirling Witchcraft and Last Call, so stay tuned for those reviews. And it's now time for our button-shy solo spectacular. So all of these games are 18-card games that are produced by Button-Shy. They are all solo games, and there are three of them today. And the first one that we're going to start off with is Ragemore, produced in 2020. It takes about 20 minutes to play, designed and artwork by Bojan Praklasic. And in Ragemore, players complete quests while managing their hand and resources as they delve through the dark, fighting demons in the span of 10 to 15 minutes. Each card is two-sided with a demon and a hero on either side. At the beginning of the game, the player sets up two piles of demon-sided quests and a party of three hero-sided cards. Then an immediate threat is revealed from the draw deck as a current demon card that may or may not be dealt with. If it's not killed, the demon card will go to one of the quest piles, and an event that's written on it will take effect. If it's killed, the demon card is flipped to the hero side and becomes one of the party. The player can also ignore the immediate demon threat and goes on a quest to obtain the win condition, or parlay with some of the demons to turn them into heroes, but with the cost of the hero's morality. So basically, the hero gets flipped to the demon side and joins the draw deck of demons. The game is won when the hero gains the required number of quest cards by using a combination of the four symbols drawn on each card. The game is lost when the graveyard has three deaths, when a quest pile has four demons, the party no longer has any more heroes, the draw deck of demons is empty before the number of quest cards is fulfilled, or if the quest piles are empty before the number of quest cards is fulfilled. So there's five different ways that you can lose this game, but only one way to win. So as far as my thoughts on this, the art and the feel of the game are very evocative of Dark Souls. So it's a very dark game, lots of kind of desperation. Really enjoyed it. The theme really fits the kind of feel of the card game. That said, I feel like I'm much better at this than I am at Dark Souls, uh, but it can still be quite punishing. This game's very much a resource management game and a game where incremental gains are kind of the normal key to success. Uh, You want to take two steps forward if you're going to take one step back. So you have to make sure that you're constantly progressing and making sure that the cards that you're playing are going to ultimately help you despite maybe having some setbacks on them. Just about anything that you do is going to have some sort of negative effect that you're not going to like, but you need to make sure that at least by doing that, you're 
still progressing. So there's a lot to manage here. There's the draw deck that you need to manage. There's the quest decks that you need to manage. If you deplete one of the quest decks, you basically can't get the ability to add to it anymore. Uh, so you need to manage that, keep it trimmed and, and kind of neat. It can definitely take a bit of getting used to. It's uh, not intuitive as the other games that I'm going to talk about on this list. And I think one of the other drawbacks I saw from it is how difficult the game is really is highly dependent on how the order of the cards come out. If you get a really strong starting hero set, that can really easily set you up for success, make your life a heck of a lot easier, where a difficult deck that you're drawing from can almost be nearly impossible to deal with. So I did see through multiple playthroughs there was some swinginess that was going on without a huge amount of mitigation. So not really a bad game, one that I do see some problems with. I don't see it hitting the table a ton, um, but I don't feel like I really need to get rid of it quite yet. Possibly once my little button shy bag fills up and I had to make decisions on what to keep, uh, this would probably, out of this list, be the first to hit the sell pile. And it was definitely my least favorite of the three that I'll be talking about today. But again, not a terrible game, just one that I would probably skip over to play something else. And that was Ragemore. Well, the next game that I want to talk about is the Ugly Griffin Inn, produced in 2021. And the Ugly Griffin Inn takes place in about 20 minutes. Designed by Scott Alms, who also designed Warp's Edge and the Tiny Epic series. And the artist is Ardi Al-Hafiz. In the Ugly Griffin Inn, players take ownership of the said inn, a tavern and inn with a lot of distinctly particular and rowdy patrons. During the game, four of the patrons at a time will sit at the bar, each turn, one of the patrons will head up to the inn, ready for bed, being moved to a vertical line of patrons. Each patron has an irk, and also some have some sensitivities. The irks are resolved from the top of the inn to the bottom, and if a patron's irk is met, their condition triggers and may have some negative consequences, including them leaving the inn entirely. Another patron then comes into the bar, and bad effect consequences are triggered if there's three or more the same symbol at the bar, which irks anyone at the end that has a sensitivity to that bad effect. Players lose the game if eight or more patrons leave the inn and win if they hold seven or more patrons in their inn once the deck is empty. So my thoughts on this, uh, the artwork is really, really fun, and the patrons are all tropes from fantasy literature and games, often with irks and really well-written effects to match. So everything thematically just fits. You feel like you're the innkeeper, you feel like you're managing these different patrons, trying to go and drink and then go to sleep for the night, and they have all these little tiny irks that they they, they really don't like this certain thing, and it will cause them to leave. Really managing that is, is pretty interesting. I will say that they did a, a fantastic job thematically 
of really getting that feel. The learning curve was moderate. There were a couple of hiccups about when to resolve certain effects and how certain effects took place, but I, I didn't think it was bad. I think a couple of read-throughs through the manual and, and I was pretty much good to go. You know, nothing super terrible. Uh, the gameplay is definitely challenging and there is a lot to juggle. You just kind of want to put people in the inn and just have them happy and satisfied and not caring that this person is is coming in. Usually when one person goes and triggers something, you know, and this is especially the case as the inn grows even more taller and taller and taller, juggling those patron needs is much more difficult and once something activates, the cascading effect can be absolutely huge. You can lose three, four, five different patrons all at once in this cascade of everybody just kind of leaving. So you have this catastrophe of one thing causing another thing causing another thing. While that sounds like a complaint, it's really not. I really enjoy the challenge of having to go in and manage those patrons and, and really manage, oh, well, this could trigger. If this triggers, I don't want this to be next to this. So I, I'm going to keep them away from each other. I'm going to add a little bit of a buffer if I can. And sometimes you really can add that buffer. Sometimes you just have to have that round where these things are going to cascade and you're going to have five, six patrons leaving. As long as you just don't hit that magical eight number, you're good. So it, it's really enjoyable. And for those who really do enjoy it, there's also two expansions that increase difficulty and add variety. So this one, I think there can be a definite bit of luck in how the cards come out again, much like Ragemore, um, but I didn't feel it as much. I felt like I had more of a choice. With the four patrons in the bar, I didn't necessarily feel as though I was super stuck. Uh, sometimes I didn't like my options, that's for sure, but I never felt like, oh, I got dealt a bad hand and this is terrible, this is nearly impossible to deal with. I felt like, okay, I can deal with the consequences on this to kind of advance. So yeah, it, it's a fun art style, really well done from a uh, thematic standpoint. I really want to emphasize that. If you really are into theme, I think this is one that you'll really want to check out. And the tricky gameplay had me coming back. I think this is going to stay in the bag for, for quite some time. Nice little solo game to bring out every once in a while. That was the Ugly Griffin Inn. Well, and the last game that I want to talk about today is Food Chain Island from 2020. Again, this was designed by Scott Alms, plays in 15 minutes, and the artist is Annie Wilkinson. In Food Chain Island, players will take as many turns as possible with the goal of only having one land animal card left on the table after starting with a grid of 16, which are numbered from 0 to 15. On each turn, you must move one animal, which is a predator, to eat another smaller adjacent animal, which is the prey. You then trigger the predator's effect. If you cannot make a legal move, the game ends. Players will win if three or fewer stacks of cards are on the table. That's it. That's the description of this game. Really, really not a huge amount to it. Very cute artwork, and it contrasts strangely well with the fact that the animals are eating each other. I found that it works 
creepily well. It's it's kind of amazing. And Shut Up and Sit Down actually commented on this already on an episode that I had watched, but there's this weird zesty alligator on the front of the rules manual that looks like it's getting way too much enjoyment out of eating a tiger. So you can actually go on uh, Board Game Geek and look that up and, and see it. And it's it's kind of creepy. Again, this is super simple to pick up and play. Uh, the description is basically the rule set. There's a couple more things to throw in there, but that's about it. Each game definitely feels different with how the cards are arranged in the 4x4 grid. And a big key to this game that I didn't feel in the other two games is that randomness is definitely mitigated by two sea animals, which will provide once per game effects when discarded. So if you back yourself into a corner, uh, you get a bad deal, you can use those two animal effects to kind of get yourself out of that corner. I think it mitigated a lot of the randomness. The animal effects do provide a lot of strategic depth into order of operations. So when you eat and how those animals move, you can wind up with holes in the board, you Definitely don't want to do that. You want to maintain adjacency as much as possible for the most part. Understanding what the different animals' abilities are and then having to resolve them. It gets to be really tricky, and I really enjoyed that. I thought that that was really cool and added just so much depth to this game, you know, with the order of operations that come out. And I think the final thing that I wanted to talk about is the fact that a predator can't eat anything more than three numbers below it. So if you have a 15 that can't eat an eight, it really adds some funny situations. Uh, so there is the zero numbered card that is a plant and you have all these like alpha predators that are out there and they can't even eat the plant. It, it just seems to survive way more than it should. I find that kind of humorous, but an interesting part of the game. Really enjoyed it. So this is definitely my favorite of the three. It's one that's easy to take out just about anywhere and play a couple of rounds. Relatively small footprint. I think that's one of the other things with the Ugly Griffin Inn. It can wind up taking up a, a pretty decent sized footprint as you're stacking all the different cards up. Uh, this one's definitely a smaller, more compact footprint. It's super easy to learn, but still has some wonderfully strategic gameplay. I think it makes a great solo staple. And that is Food Chain Island. Now, the ultimate question is the game that we talked about on the last episode, Sprawlopolis. If I had to choose only one between Food Chain Island or Sprawlopolis to be my only button shy game, I think I would still choose Sprawlopolis for the variety of gameplay and the player count, uh, but fortunately we don't live in that cruel world, so I can have both. I do think that I prefer Sprawlopolis just a little bit more though. So that was a little tiny button shy solo spectacular, which kind of encapsulates how I feel about the company tiny games, but they are more than not spectacular. And the last thing that I want to talk about on this episode is the listener mailbag. Now, a couple episodes ago, I did make a disparaging remark about our friend Craig, who normally comes with us to Origins, uh, lives in the area, get to play with every once in a while. I 
thought I remember the fact that he didn't enjoy Quacks of Quedlinburg. And I have to say that I was very much mistaken about this. He sent me a picture. Uh, He said that he had played the game with me and proceeded to buy it immediately afterwards. But like so many of us, he really hasn't had a chance to get it out to the table. So I will publicly apologize and say that that was incorrect. He also wrote about the inclusion of Century Spice Road as a must-have for gamers building their collections, and I think this is a pretty interesting take. Craig wrote, I think Century is very easy for avid gamers, but can be quite complex for casual players. We had a group that played a lot of light games at lunch at work, and I brought it out after it came out. The teach and general help required on the first game was way harder than I thought it should have been because there are so many simple mechanisms that had to be taught that several people hadn't been exposed to. Resource management, resource conversion, hand management, deck building, engine building. Each thing was relatively easy on its own, but altogether it added up to confuse people. This was a group playing things like Spyfall, Camel Up, and King of Tokyo. It seemed so simple to me, and it baffled me that multiple people had a hard time grasping what to do. After some thought, I realized that it was that there were too many new elements. I thought this was definitely a great point. Looking back at that game, there are a lot of elements kind of juggling at once that I think as as regular gamers were kind of used to. So I'm, I'm wondering if Splendor might actually be the slightly easier teach in this case, but I definitely wouldn't discount uh, Century Spice Road as kind of like a long-term must-have. That said, I, I do really appreciate the comment and I think there's a lot of validity to that newer gamers may have a little bit of a difficult time with Century Spice Road so thank you Craig for the comment so I do have our keyword for the giveaway that I said that I was going to have at the end of the episode and that keyword is button as in button shy. So make sure to stay tuned to Instagram for details on how to win and how to use that keyword that will be coming out very shortly after this episode drops. So definitely good luck to everybody. And again, that keyword is button. And I think that's about all the time that we have for today. A lot of things coming up, a lot of very exciting events that I can't wait for, a lot of opportunities to meet some of you as well. Super excited. And that said, make sure to check out our Facebook. Our Instagram and Twitter are at cardboard underscore time. Take a look at our Board Game Geek podcast page. Any questions, suggestions, or ideas for discussion topics, feel free to email cardboardtime at gmail.com. And as always, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in another two weeks for another episode of Cardboard Time.